0: Welcome to Disrupted Asia Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience, a podcast series by Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Asia. In part two of our two-part segment on competing and converging visions in Asia, we will explore China's view on the Asia-Pacific region, its perceived strategic challenges and policy approaches to secure interests in the region. Two weeks ago, part one of this segment covered the Indian perspective, It might be an interesting listen for you as well. Today's podcast will feature the three main topics of our time and their interactions in one episode China's alternative growth model, COVID 19, and the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. What are the goals of BRI projects beyond building infrastructure? How has the global pandemic changed China's standing abroad? And how will China, Asia, and the world? change with the growing power and influence of Beijing. To discuss all this, we have with us today two guests, Ms. Yun-san and Mr. Richard Gyasi. Yun-san is a senior fellow at the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C., where she is the co-director of the East Asia Programme and director of the China Programme. She has previously worked as the China Analyst for the International Crisis Group based in Beijing. Richard Gyasi is a senior fellow focusing on China and India at the Leiden Asia Centre in the Netherlands. He is also an advisor on Asian geopolitics and geoeconomics at the Hague Centre for Strategic Studies. We spoke to both our guests separately, and this is an edited version of the two conversations.
1: Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia, Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. I am Kai Dittmann. Today we have with us Yun Sun and Richard Gyasi. It's great that both of them took the time being with us today. Yun, uh, it would be interesting to start with getting a general sense of the Chinese understanding of the BRI, where it came from, what it is, uh, and its importance to China.
2: So the strategic logic of a BRI is for China to develop an alternative strategic space, not to the east of China, but to the west of China. Which is why when you look at both the belt and the road, their eventual direction is going west towards Europe. But there's also a domestic economic background to the BRI, which is the overcapacity of the Chinese domestic economy. That was a result of China's domestic, the Chinese government's domestic stimulus package as a result of the 2008 international financial crisis, which basically put China's domestic industries on steroids. But by 2012, 2013, the Chinese government had come to the realization that the domestic market is pretty, was pretty saturated at that point. And to sustain the survival of these Chinese industries, for example, in infrastructure development, the Chinese government needs to develop alternative market for this massive Chinese capacity. So from that perspective, if you look at BRI, you could understand it as a overseas stimulus package where the Chinese government uses government funding to support the export of the Chinese products and the Chinese contract service to an overseas market.
1: We also asked Richard Gyasi about BRI and its importance to China's foreign policy and the accompanying narratives.
3: The BRI is very much a Chinese vision, a Chinese platform for joint development for global connectivity. It is a very useful narrative because its focus is on joint development, on coordination, on connectivity. And this connectivity runs across a number of spectra, economics, diplomatic, cultural, cyber, I could go on. And honestly, other large actors such as the EU or China, or Japan, have connectivity endeavors of their own as well, but they don't have a vision this large, a narrative that runs for, for decades. We are saying, well, look, we, being China, uh, have been able to develop quite fast and quite vast over the last, give or take, four decades. We're in the middle of our development experience, and we'd like to share some of our Insights and experience and trials and errors with you. You here obviously being mostly the developing world, where developing economies, but also the, some of the more advanced economies. It can indeed also benefit local markets if indeed the right policies are pursued. Let me clarify. Um, you know, if you build a, uh, a dam, if you build a road between two cities, if you build a power plant. On paper, those are indeed very useful, and they can be utilized prudently, you know, to the benefit of the local economy. But that is also very much dependent on soft policies, on local policies, on prudent economic policies. And that's not so much in China's hands. But so this is kind of like the the drive and the dynamic of the BRI. But you could also say and some analysts have indeed, is that the BRI is also a more friendly version of China's global expansion. That is to say that there is a diplomatic outreach followed by economic activity, and then possibly followed by closer security cooperation.
1: Um, So what would you say is the perception of direct neighbors and uh, recipients of BRI projects on the one side? And... I would say, uh, competitive powers in the region and beyond on the other side?
2: I think it depends on which country we're talking about. Uh, so if you, for example, in South Asia, if you look at Pakistan, um, the China-Pakistan economic corridor has been regarded as uh, the flagship of the flagships. So it's, uh, it's pretty Warmly welcomed by the Pakistani government because finally there's a country who is willing to spend the financial resources and to give Pakistan the attention to help the fragile state to build and uh, to build its internal strengths. And the logic there is that with China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, China will be able to help Pakistan to reboost its economy, and then hopefully that economic development will start to reduce tension and reduce the um, reduce the internal political fragility of the state. But if you ask India, the, the the answer is completely opposite, that they see BRI as, a, as an invasive campaign for China to extend its influence into India's backyard and front yard in, in South Asia. So it depends on which country we're talking about. I think for any countries that BRI has extended to, the views at, or the reviews have been quite mixed, that on one hand, even within the government, you hear the senior leaders are very happy about the Chinese financing, but on the working level, the, uh, I think the, the reception has been also quite mixed. And then if you look at the civil society and look at the um, relocated or dislocated people uh, population from their land, I think the, the criticism and the discontent are not only obvious, but also well justified. But I think it,
1: it really depends on which pockets of the population you're talking to. Richard had a similar opinion about this.
3: Right. No, there is a range of perceptions, indeed. They tend to differ at subnational levels, at sub-regional levels. If we were to focus on, um, say, Asia, uh, Central Asia is quite welcoming of it, uh, not necessarily too negative. I think out of those five countries, Kazakhstan is perhaps, let us say, the most um, prudent. But by and large, it's quite welcomed also because Central Asia itself is the world's largest landlocked region. South Asia somewhat more divided. Pakistan obviously host to the flagship quarter, CPEC. India has been very consistent in its policy. It said right from the beginning, well, you know, we're not quite sure about what it is, how multilateral it is, how transparent it is, and it's been quite critical. The smaller countries in in South Asia are a mixed bag. I mean, they're trying to balance Indian core interests with uh, Chinese investment. Southeast Asia is, is a bit more mixed. You see that the countries that um, have a little bit more um, of economic need, investment need, FDI need, Cambodia, Laos are quite a bit more receptive. Singapore is quite balanced. You see Indonesia, Malaysia, by and large, and this is this is somewhat resembling other regions is their initial excitement about the BRI has somewhat lessened. I think to an extent, China may have oversold and overpromised the BRI and what it could pull off. So there's a little bit less excitement, although I wouldn't say it's gone. Um, There's a little bit more homework being done in these countries about how it can benefit the local population, what potential side effects could be. You see this outside of Asia as well, Uh, a bit more homework being done. But I do think that China underestimated some of the complications, uh, both at the local level when they invest overseas, but also in terms of some of the narratives that actors that oppose the BRI, largely the US and India, uh, that they've been able to put out in global media that it's a debt trap and that it's you know very unreliable and, and, and not economically rational and all that. So I think China um, has learned a little bit from that. I think they're a little fearful of financial overstretch. So you do see that both from the Chinese side as well from the recipient side, there is more caution now, more prudency.
1: One of the developments that we saw is that Many large scale projects were were put on hold over the last month because uh, the coronavirus has literally changed everything for almost all of us. So it would be strange if uh, a century project like BRI wouldn't change within the virus. What developments can you see within the project or the tendencies that this uh, virus might lead to within the the large scale or longer term project horizon?
3: I would have to revert back to what I mentioned before about the, the BRI already showing tendencies on both sides, China and the recipient of a bit of more hesitance, a little bit more of homework being done, a little bit, uh, a little bit more risky evaluating policies. I don't think necessarily that the pandemic will change much of that. I think what it may positively affect is closer uh, health cooperation. So perhaps the BRI will. Uh, Will develop a little str- more strong in in that domain, but otherwise, and this has already actually started before the pandemic, is you see the digital seal growth um, making strides. For instance, we look at uh, terrestrial, but foremost submarine cables. Those, these are the cables that carry all our you know the zeros and the ones. China owns about thirty percent of the Asian cables. Is now building about fifty percent of of the new cables. It's building the digital backbone, global satellite navigation systems, BADO with full coverage of Asia, well actually global coverage. Uh, it's setting new standards. If you look at its expansion throughout Asia in that realm, I think that is making larger strides than let's say traditional projects. And they also draw less attention, you know, submarine cables are obviously less visual than you know, a big Chinese port somewhere in South Asia and Southeast Asia. So I think that's actually um, a strategically more important development than um,
2: possible side effects of the pandemic.
1: yun also did not see any drastic long-term changes to the BRI.
2: I don't think China will abandon BRI. Um, not only because this is Xi Jinping's flagship project, um, and Xi Jinping in the first, will be in power for the foreseeable future, so I don't see him or his team... Abandoning such a signature form strategy of, uh, of, of him as a top leader in the in the near future. So I think BRI will evolve. I think the, the level of spending that uh that happens under under BRI, both in terms of the uh concessional loans and in terms and also in terms of the commercial loans, has been uh has been becoming more moderate. And I think, especially this year with COVID-19. But it doesn't mean the Chinese will abandon it completely. I think a lot of the projects have already been signed and the disbursement will continue in, in different installments. So uh, we might see a slowdown, but I think BRI is going to remain there for the foreseeable future.
1: And others reacted to BRI. The Quad, so Australia, Japan, India, and the US received new momentum with it. The strategies are called Free and Open or Free, Open and Inclusive Indo-Pacific. These narratives are to some degree a reaction to BRI. How would you describe the conversion or the competition of these two narratives?
3: Right. Well, the, the Indo-Pacific or the Free, Open and Open Indo-Pacific is, is, I would say, partially a response to the BRI, but its nature differs quite strongly. The BRI is a very concrete connectivity endeavor. Uh, critical infrastructure, um, but also, for instance, the digital Silk Road and cyber infrastructure, whereas the Indo-Pacific concept is very much a marrying of two oceans. But what this marrying does, and it's mostly been propagated initially, at least by, by Japan and the U.S., is it marries the concerns, the interests and the powers of the Pacific, mostly the U.S., Japan with those of the Indian Ocean I'll focus here on on India so in that sense it makes things from a geopolitical perspective more complicated but for the perspective from the quad that you refer to the quad isn't really a formal entity uh India for instance is has always pursued a policy of non-alignment and yes they're part of the quad but then again not really But if I were to predict, yes, they're going to be more closely involved. But uh, it facilitates the cooperation of the Quad as well. Uh, Obviously, we have a a change in the the balance of power in Asia, mostly as a result of China's reemergence. And uh, because of that reemergence, because we don't in Asia generally have quite established security architecture. And because China hasn't itself clearly conveyed what it sees as a security architecture for the Western Pacific, for the East and South China seas, for, well, at least for its ambition to become a resident actor in the Indian ocean, what it intends um, there's nervousness, there's anxiety. And you see that the large actors uh, are taking steps and some of the, the larger actors in in Europe uh, Germany France England to an extent the Netherlands as well
1: yun san focused on the rising strategic component between the US and China in the region
2: the free and open indo pacific strategy is uh, has well a lot of them a lot of people have regarded that as a US counter strategy to the to the chinese belt and road initiative so I think what we're seeing generally at the theme is the rising strategic competition between China and the United States through these different visions for the region or for, for the world. So that also means that um, the future of these strategies are very much dependent on the, uh, who is in power in both China and in the United States, what their foreign strategy visions look like. And also what they foresee should be their future relationship with each other. And that is an interactive process, meaning that the result of the interaction very much depends on what happened during those interaction process, Um, which means that I think the pre-judgment or the pre-existing conclusion that U.S. and China have fallen into a new Cold War is being challenged in, in both countries. So, needless to say, uh, I think a lot of Chinese, both officials and the strategists or the strategic thinkers, are um, hinging the future of the U.S.-China relations on the November election, and they believe the result of the election is make a huge difference, which is probably true.
1: Yun also touched upon why China still seems like an attractive option for other countries in the region, even with an Indian or Australian narrative about the need for them to reduce their dependence on China.
2: Um, the Chinese advantage is not um it's not that they are free and open. It's not that they 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 offer independence with everything else. Um the Chinese advantage is uh, financial resources they have available to throw into infrastructure projects. And I think that is essentially difficult for uh, countries like India or Australia or even the United States, not because, uh, these countries don't have the financing, but because these countries don't have that government-dominated model. So while Beijing can mobilize its foreign reserve, can mobilize government resources at an exceedingly high scale, the U.S. has primarily relied on the market to make the decision that whether a company or a bank should invest in a infrastructure project, but that's not how the Chinese makes a decision. The Chinese can make a government decision, they can make a decision based on strategic interest, but not necessarily the commercial interest. So I think that means that where the Chinese can compete in terms of the financial resources, um, the other countries may not be able to. And that's not the comparative advantage of these other countries anyway. And In particular, I would like to uh, point out that with COVID-19 this year, the Chinese economy is still nominally growing, which is a sharp contrast to to the rest of the world. If you look at the Indian uh, GDP, I think one number that I saw from the second quarter was that the Indian GDP shrunk by 23%. So I think that's inevitably going to affect the, the ability of the of the quad countries uh, to to compete with China in this branch, And the other side of the equation is uh, what are the preferences of the recipient countries? So I think the the answer is that if the recipient countries are looking at two exactly same identical offers, one from China, one from the, the, the quad the four countries under quad, for the same financial terms, And potentially the same political terms, I think a lot of recipient countries probably would choose um, to work with the United States, work Quad countries. But um, the reality is that the terms are not the same. There are political conditions and the financial terms are also vastly different. So I think that the recipient countries' preference is always a factor that people refuse to look at in these discussions.
1: Maybe to shift a little bit, I'm wondering a little bit what uh, the Chinese perception is about the EU to be a more important partner for China.
2: Uh, I think it depends on which region, right? I think in the in the European region, we know that Foreign for Minister Wang Yi was in Europe and state, uh, I'm sorry, Politburo member Yang uh, Jiechi is in Europe right after Yang, uh, Wang Yi. So I think the intention on China's part to consolidate relations with Europe, especially given the exacerbation of relations with the United States, is very clear. But then again, you have to ask that whether they are doing a, 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 a good job because China needs to understand that what happens within China and what, what, what happens with China's actions on issues such as the Uyghurs and on issues such as Hong Kong does have a significant impact over how Europe perceives and receives China, and I think the results that we saw in um, the the pushback from Czech, from the Czech Republic, and the 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 opinions that uh, Wang Yi had to deal with had to deal with in both France and Germany, are a manifestation of that. So I think, although on one hand China wants to consolidate and strengthen ties with Europe, on the other hand, China has created all these problems that European countries would not agree with China. But, um, I guess for China, the good news is that maybe China has not fared very well as a result of uh, what, what, everything that has happened this year. But the U.S. has not done that well either. So I would say that in these cases, um, or, or in in 2020, both U.S. and China are failing in their, in their leadership. So we might have a situation where where um, I think the third powers, where the third pole, uh, such as Europe, is going to play a bigger role, not necessarily picking a side on either US or China, but to have its independent position and to be that balancing force.
1: And what about the EU's capacity to play a bigger role in the Indo Pacific?
3: I would say that the EU and in particular, the economically more heavyweights of of the EU um, have grown much more aware of what's happening in Asia and that they should pay attention. Obviously, that's an important and necessary development. But overall, besides closer partnerships, besides closer investment, more dialogue, more diplomatic exchange, what the EU doesn't really have is, is the hard power, the military power that well, for instance, the U.S. has. So in that sense, the EU is is a welcome power, uh, a geopolitically somewhat more trusted, somewhat more objective entity than the U.S., at least as perceived by many of the Asian stakeholders that I speak to. But it, it's, its powers, its influence does have limits.
1: Maybe to come to an end, in the 1990s, the Washington Consensus was the primary lens through which the world was seen. So free market economic policies supported by powerful financial institutions, such as the IMF and the World Bank. I know that the concept of a Beijing consensus is contested, but if there is a lens through which maybe not the world, but large parts of Eurasia will be seen in the future, what would this lens look like?
2: Well, that's uh, that's a great question. It's also a a futuristic question. Um, I think one thing that we can probably agree is that the fact that the Chinese projects, the PRI has been popular in some corners of the world um, by itself is a manifestation that the existing narratives and the existing mechanisms and the existing solutions had not been sufficient to what those corners of the world needs. I think liberal democracy is uh, is a value that should be embraced, but. Um, We also need to acknowledge that liberal democracy has not solved the problems in a lot of countries. So I think the fact that China's approach or this China model, uh, so-called state capitalism, has been has been well received and has been popular, is a testament that these countries might need something different um, from liberal democracy as we have uh, or as the West has preached. There may not be one standardized answer to address the problems faced by different countries and different countries do have different historical experience. But one thing that I do know is that I think the Chinese feel on one hand vulnerable and on the other hand confident and even to an extent arrogant about their own model. I think there's a very clear intention on China's part to prove that, hey, our our model is superior, as you can see from the Chinese narrative after uh, the outbreak of the pandemic, that the Chinese authoritarian model of disease control has been more effective, which is probably true, that if you look at how China controlled the spread of the disease, regardless of China being the the country that had the first cases, it's, it's quite remarkable that the government can control the population to that extent. But the question is that, is that a is that a better model? Are people willing to sacrifice their personal liberty, their personal freedom, and also their personal privacy in order for the government to better manage the disease control aspect? I think the answer to that is, uh, is, is very diverse, even in China. I think we would we not be able to foresee something like, 30 years ago, we could not have imagined that China would be what it is today. So I think it's, it's going to be hard to imagine what it will look like in another 30 years.
1: The BRI should be completed by 2049. What will be the fundamental shifts for the region if uh, something like a Beijing consensus might emerge? China
3: obviously wants to continue to have a stable environment, a well-functioning global economy so that it itself can continue to build economic muscle as it builds economic muscle my perception is is that it doesn't mind or actually prefers if it can function as the tide that you know lifts smaller boats i think that china wants to be seen and recognized as a very important economic political and security actor in its region and beyond i think that china wants to and i'm touching here and you know somewhat more international relations theory, but China's bet to survive in the international system is its best bet is to become a regional hegemon, that is to say, to dominate the Eastern Hemisphere the way the US has and continues to dominate the Western Hemisphere. Now, obviously, there's quite a few actors, including the US, who will try and go against that, but these are the trends of China's interests, desires, ambitions, and actions.
1: Thank you. That was super interesting. And uh, it was very exciting talking to you.
0: This was Yunsan, Director of the China Program at Stimson, and Richard Gyasi, Senior Fellow focusing on China and India at the Leiden Asia Center. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupted Asia Between Crisis, Rise, and Resilience. This podcast was brought to you by Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Asia, interviewed by Kai Dittmann. Research by Aryaman Bhatnagar, directed by Mirko Gunter, and produced by Andovar. Please make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it, and don't forget to visit our website, fes-asia.org, for regular updates on freedom, justice, and solidarity in Asia.